0: I don't like the word identity politics because it reduces all the identities we have down to two, and also down to the two that we have the least form of agency in. But I do think that the lack of reflection on the left in the sense of helplessness and hopelessness about what it might mean to have a real universalist Left-wing project that would be global. Lack of reflection about what went wrong has led to this interning about defending my group, figuring out my group identity, and that hubalis. And now the good fight with Yasha Monk,
1: Sherry Berman, the excellent political scientist and old friend of the podcast published a really interesting and thought-provoking piece in Persuasion a few days ago. It's called How Western Europe's Far Right Moderated. And her argument is that in weak political systems, extremist parties can take over the government without needing to moderate. And they often become very dangerous to democratic stability, as we have seen in Poland and Venezuela. And as she argues, and I would agree, we are seeing in the United States with the current Republican Party. But Sherry also argues that in relatively strong political systems, for example, in Western Europe, these far-right parties face a kind of difficult choice. Either they remain extreme, but don't come to have much influence, or they moderate, in which case they can enter governments and perhaps even grow in their vote share. And Sherry sees this phenomenon at play with the Sweden Democrats, with Giorgia Meloni's party in Italy, even with Marine Le Pen. While these parties and candidates had genuinely extremist roots, Sherry argues, we no longer need to be as worried about them because they have shed some of their anti-democratic leanings. That, she concludes, is one of the reasons why Western European democracies are safer than many experts now believe. Shari's article comes at a time when there's been some interesting developments in political science trying to argue back against concern about the state of our democracies. Another interesting argument by Andrew Little and Ann Mang, says that subjective measures of democracy, like Freedom House, have deteriorated But objective measures of democracy, like whether presidents overstep term limits or how many journalists are jailed, have not, in fact, become worse over the last decade. I discussed this in a forthcoming episode of a podcast with John Kerry. I say all of this not because I have ceased being worried about the threat of populism. We have seen in many countries that these figures have exactly, as I have been warning for nearly 10 years, managed to effectively destroy the democratic system in countries like Turkey, Hungary, arguably Poland, as well as in countries outside of Europe. But I do think it is important to... Keep an open mind about exactly what is happening. And it's important to embrace good news when we see it, because otherwise we only breed cynicism and despair. So I think it's important to reckon with the arguments that Sherry, as well as others, have been making that are more optimistic. I don't quite share their conclusions, but I've been thinking seriously about just how much they should change our overall assessment of the situation. I hope you will think about this too, and we'll have a few conversations on the podcast over the coming months that will hopefully help us all puzzle through this together. My guest today is Susan Niemann. Susan is a moral and political philosopher who is the director of the Einstein Forum in Potsdam. We talked mostly about her new book called Left is Not Woke. Susan makes the argument that genuine leftists should be committed to a form of universalism and critiques many of the new forms of identitarianism that have become so prominent over the course of the last years. We try to understand uh, where our perspectives align and where they differ. And at the end, we also talk a little bit about a topic we have both written about, namely Germany's relationship to its own history, to its own past, and whether and how it might be a model for the way in which Americans should deal with the history of slavery and other crimes committed in the United States. Susan Neiman, welcome to the podcast. I'm glad to be here. So your last book has the thesis in its title. It's called Left is Not Woke. What do you mean by that?
0: Well, I could also say that woke is not left. I wrote this book partly to figure out my own confusion, but it was a confusion that was reflected in conversations I had been having with friends in many different countries, all of whom their whole lives stood on the side of the left and suddenly felt and said, what is this? Maybe I'm not left anymore. And that struck me as wrong, but no one had quite teased out what the difference and the problems are. I didn't want to give up the word left. And I wanted to write a short book setting out what I consider to be left liberal principles, those are two different things, and distinguishing them from the woke. In a nutshell, the very short thesis is that woke is fueled by traditional left-wing emotions, having your empathy for people who've been marginalized, wanting to correct historical discrimination and oppression as you know there's a german saying das herz liegt links yeah your heart is on the left side of your body but the woke are undermined by what are actually very reactionary theoretical assumptions and you do not have to have read Carl Schmitt or michel foucault in order to share those assumptions those are assumptions that have gotten into the water stream because every journalist went to college and picked up certain claims coming from these quite reactionary sources that are now often transmitted in the media as if they were self evident truths. So I wanted to show the gap between genuine left-wing philosophical assumptions and the premises that the woke are often acting on. And so
1: explain to us a little bit where that distinction lies, because somebody who defends the sort of identitarian left, somebody who defends the quote-unquote woke might say, well, listen, I mean, the origin of a word, which has now become this kind of, uh, you know, embattled term, which is often just used in this pejorative sense, is to be awoken. And what we meant by that is to be awoken to injustices, and particularly to injustices facing marginalized groups. And so, you know, in fact, some of what you briefly telegraphed about left liberal principles, that you have compassion, that you have empathy, that you understand the experiences of marginalized people. That's just precisely what woke is all about. Now, I disagree with that as well. But I think that's going to be the sort of standard response that people give. So what does that get wrong? Why is it that to be woke is not just to be, you know, rightly empathetic towards the real something, the real injustices facing marginalized groups?
0: Because empathy and compassion are emotions, and they're important emotions, but they're not principles. So let me lay out what I think are three liberal left principles that are violated by The woke. The first is traditionally the left has always been on the side of universalism rather than tribalism. Tribalism has always been a conservative view, suggesting that the only people you will have real connections with, and therefore real obligations to, are people who belong to your tribe, okay? And for universalists on the liberal left, your tribe could encompass the entire world. Of course, you have certain affinities to people who get your jokes or understand your illusions. But to be a universalist is to work hard to try and understand what are going on in other cultures that are not your own. So that's the first difference between left and liberal. The second difference is that you believe there's a principal difference between justice and power. Again, a really major achievement of the Enlightenment. Of course, there were signs of it before the Enlightenment, but the idea that your claims to representation are claims about justice, that it's not simply the strongest person or group of people in the neighborhood, but that people deserve certain rights on the basis of human dignity, is a claim about justice. Now, obviously, there's things that get confused. The Iraq War is a great example. George W. Bush, we've forgotten how outraged we were 20 years ago when claims about spreading democracy and ending tyranny were used for really as hype to dress up certain claims about power. And that happens all the time. But what many of the woke have concluded is because claims to justice or universal justice have been abused, they are nothing but claims to power. And you have someone like uh, Foucault who's made that a principle of his entire work. So that's the second principle on which liberals and leftists agree. Third one is a belief in the possibility of progress. And this gets a little tricky because, of course, I know woke activists who do Believe that they're working towards progress, ending racial, sexist, homophobic discrimination, and those are all good things. But if you don't actually believe that progress has taken place in the past, it's very hard to develop the will to make more. So claims like nothing has changed in the United States since slavery, or you know, we're still living under a patriarchy that hasn't fundamentally changed, is a statement about really the futility of actual change that undermines efforts to make some There's a fourth principle that probably would be accepted by most of the woke and isn't accepted by many liberals. And that's what makes me part of the left rather than a liberal. I believe that social rights are human rights. All this was codified in the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights in 1948, which is an aspirational doctrine. But it means that things like fair labor practices, education, health care, access to culture, are social rights. They're not benefits. They're not privileges. They're not safety nets. They're rights in the same way that the right to travel or the right to speak are rights. Uh, And I think most people on the woke would probably agree with that, but many liberals don't. I am happy to have as big a tent as possible. I think we are facing what really needs to be called by its name. It's not authoritarianism. There are signs of fascism in many countries in the world. And I would be delighted if liberals and leftists would get together on this score a number of people have been afraid that my writing this book and using "woke" as something of a term of abuse—I'm not snarky about it. I get the woke. My kids are woke. I, you know, have many friends who would consider themselves in that part of the spectrum. And many people were concerned that I would be giving aid and comfort to Ron DeSantis or who knows what else? I haven't done that. First of all, I say on the first page of the book that I'm a socialist and a leftist, not a liberal. Secondly, there are certain places where I haven't appeared and won't appear. I'm not joining woke bashing. I'm really trying to to provoke some serious thinking about what has gone wrong in the so-called woke left that I fear is actually driving some people's move to the right or the center right. But I think certainly in cases of the people I know, leading to just a, a resignation and a sense of despair about being politically involved at all.
1: Well, I think in any case, there's just a wrong thesis about the world that people often have when they reflect about journalism or public writing, where they sort of say, well, you know, certain things are inconvenient, certain things might be used by the other side, because we're on the wrong side of it. So if only we sort of enforce silence about it, then people won't discover that we're wrong about it. And it'll sort of stop them from being able to take over. And I think that really is actually a vote of no confidence in ordinary people, because it assumes that you can pull the wool over their eyes. When in reality, I think addressing those points in an open and clear way gives them confidence that they might want to listen to you on the rest of it. If they look at a left that is united in defending ideas that they find to be wrongheaded, why would they trust the left on anything else? Whereas if they see a debate within the left where people are willing to say, hey, these points we agree on, these other points, you know, there's some people in our ranks that I don't agree on, then they might identify themselves with that. So I think that's just sort of, apart from anything else, this is bad social science Behind that, but it also, I mean, as part, I think, of this atmosphere that we've had over the last years, so that's perhaps slightly receding now. Of oh my god, I can't say that, which I think one of the leftist principles I would add to the ones you've talked about is a freedom from fear and a freedom from fear to talk and think out loud about the world. And unfortunately, sometimes leftist milieus are very bad at protecting uh, that freedom from fear for their own members.
0: I agree with you entirely. I just didn't want to talk about that. I didn't want to talk about cancel culture because enough good people have said reasonable things about that. I wanted to try something new. And what is striking is I when I started giving book talks about this book two months ago, I started by saying this book arose from conversations that I bet you've been having in private. And everyone in the audience would nod and smile and say, yes, but we don't say it out loud. The fourth principle
1: sort of is a little bit tacked on, I suppose. So let's talk about the three main principles that you address. And I think it's helpful to go through them in reverse order, because I think in a way they build on each other and within the uh, worldview that you're describing, where sort of the third principle is the basis, and then you get to the second, and then the final inference is the first. At least that's how I think about these principles. I largely agree with you in what work that I have coming out, but these are broadly speaking the kind of principles that help to make up what the world, world view is. So let's start with this denial of progress. Derek Bell, the founder of Critical Race Theory, really acknowledged as the most important influence on it, once wrote a very influential article called The Permanence of Racism. Even writing in the 70s and 80s, he was saying that really racism had gotten no better in the United States even after the civil rights movement, that the nature of racial injustice might permutate, it might become more invisible, but it's a historical constant. It hasn't gotten better at all in the United States. So what is your response to that kind of pessimism about whether it is racism in the United States or, you know, forms of identity-based injustice in other parts of the world?
0: I mean, I just have to say that it's without any empirical basis. Tell it in particular to anybody who grew up in the South during the age of what I don't like to call Jim Crow, I would call it the age of racial terror following Brian Stevenson. You know, you have this claim also by the Afro-pessimists, Frank Wilderson and uh, Sadia Hartman. And I honestly think it flies in the face of every fact, every social science fact that we know, but also every anecdotal fact. I mean, I can remember one of my earliest memories I grew up in Georgia during the Civil Rights Movement, and one of my earliest memories is my mother was involved and was, not without some risk, working to help desegregate the school system. And I can remember that it was against the law for black and white children to go swimming together, okay? I can remember the day that the schools were desegregated, but I also remember at that time that there had never been a black cabinet minister, and that the idea that there would be an African-American intellectual sitting in the White House for eight years was just not something that anybody imagined at the time. Did the election of Barack Obama and racism? Of course it didn't. It's too deep and long-lasting and in some ways systemic a phenomenon to be ended in one generation. But that enormous progress has I made. Mean, I just, you know, think about, there's <laughs> another interesting thing that people are often too young to remember. It was a big deal when the Supremes got onto mainstream radio, because there was a classification called race music, and black music was played on black radio stations. And when you look at the music industry today that people take for granted, there's been a sea change. Does this change the life of every poor kid in a Baltimore slum? Of course it doesn't, okay? For that, we need real socioeconomic changes, but that there have been major changes in our perception of race and our understanding of it just seems a simple empirical fact. And I would also go on to say it has been true about assumptions about women's rights as well in my own lifetime. I've seen major, major changes that have not actually happened as quickly in Germany as they did in the United States, but Germany is often a bit behind
1: and perhaps we'll come back to talking about Germany later in the conversation, I always wonder sort of why it is that these ways of talking about a lack of progress, or this form of pessimism, have such an intellectual hold. And they have an intellectual hold on different topics in different parts of the West, at least. And I wonder whether there's a kind of weird association that we've started to make between pessimism and virtuousness or between how much how pessimistic you are and how much you care it's nearly as though sort of if you're saying you know it is terrible then you're saying i really care about the people who are experiencing injustice and if you're saying look it is very bad there are things that we need to fix and improve on but actually we've made progress from 40 years ago it's as though you're implying well, really, we don't need to do anything because things have gotten better, so who cares? And of course, as a theory of political action in the background, I find that to be wholly unconvincing, because in fact, if nothing's changed over 70 years, despite all of our efforts collectively, members of a minority, of course, but also of members of a majority group, then why keep going, right? If racism is permanent and it's never changing, it might change form, but it's never going to become any less bad, well, I may as well play Xbox and have a nice dinner because whatever I do, it's not going to change. Whereas if you say, look, that continuing injustice that we should fight against, but also we should take solace and optimism from the fact that we've made some improvements and so we're capable of making more improvements. So perhaps, again, what we're dealing with here in the background is a kind of weird Set of social scientific assumptions about what will spur people to action and a weird set sort of psychological assumptions about what it indicates about you, how you speak about this, and perhaps what
0: will make people care. Well, that's a good point. And I agree with you that it seems much more motivating to believe that some changes have been made in the past and now it's time to make some more than to suggest that, no, it's all just as bad as it always was. But I think there's something else besides a social science assumption. I think there are deep, well, it's a combination of psychological and philosophical assumptions. Talking about how everything is worse makes you sound smarter. People who talk about things being, yeah, gradually there's been some progress made, not enough, but this is how things proceed, are dismissed as being naive and slightly embarrassing. And there are these philosophical tropes. Once again, you do not have to have read Foucault or Adorno and Horkheimer to make them, but the idea that what looked like progress in the past turned out to be a subtle and insidious form of repression and domination, that is a trope that, again, you get social science, you get in some of the humanities, and then you get into the newspaper and the podcasts and whatever. And and it sounds clever, okay? But you could actually deconstruct that just as well as they think they're deconstructing claims about progress. And that's part of what I tried to do in the book.
1: So the second principle that you talk about, as I understand it, sort of contrasts power and principles. Let me put to you how I would think about this, how I've written about this in forthcoming work, and you can respond to me whether we agree or whether you have a sort of slightly different spin on it. So the way that I think about it is that, you know, of course, many societies have failed to live up to the noble values that they've written on the packaging. The United States Constitution, when it was written, was a beautiful document. And obviously, the racial reality of the United States continued to be terrible for 150 years and continue to be deeply troubled. Well, beyond that. Now, I think there's a fundamental question that you then have about, do you try to live up to the principles or do you discard them? And where I take to be the core difference, the core distinction between what I would call the liberal left and the identitarian left is that those of us in the liberal left say, look, we have to redouble our efforts to live up to these principles, but we have made historical Progress and we've made a of progress in part because of the demands of people to be treated in accordance with the principles that this society invokes. The civil rights movement was, among other things, Martin Luther King Jr. saying, You've made us a promise, a promissory note, and we want to cash that check. We want to be, in fact, treated in accordance with principles that you claim to be living up to. So, by what right are you excluding us from it so that these universal values, in fact, have? An emancipatory force, even if they can often be used as a sort of nice putting lipstick on a pig or whatever, right? Now, what you would call the woke left, or the identitarian left, rejects this, right? They say no, no, no. These principles have always just been make believe. They've always just been a way of pretending that we're living up to these principles. And in fact, the function is precisely to perpetuate this injustice. So therefore, we have to get rid of those principles. And if you get rid of those principles, the only thing that's left is group power. And so then the entire left somehow hopes that through a series of social transformations, the logic of group power, which used to benefit the white majority or the male dominant group or the, you know, whatever dimension you're looking at, somehow by a miraculous transmutation is now going to structurally favor the people who used to be oppressed. And so... You know, I think there's a principled objection to this, but that's not the kind of society of power struggle that I want to live in. And there's a practical objection, which is what on earth makes you so confident that the people who've always been oppressed, have been in the minority, will suddenly be powerful enough that they can impose the group will on the others, rather than this, you know, competition for group struggle, for group power, once again, benefiting the dominant group. So, so that's not how I would put this point. I'm sure you have a spin on it.
0: Yeah, I agree with you entirely with every word. And it's a dispute, interestingly enough, though people forget it. They always think they've invented it. It's a dispute that goes back to the dispute between Socrates and the sophists, okay? The claim that every discussion of justice amounts to an assertion of power and an attempt to pull the wool over people's eyes. So it's a very old discussion, but you're absolutely right. I am on the side of people like Frederick Douglass or Sojourner Truth. I mean, it goes all the way, way before Martin Luther King. And interestingly enough, African Americans have been in the forefront of those who pushed America to live up to the ideals that it proclaimed and didn't realize. There's also an interesting debate right now about colonialism and post-colonial theory, which I find extraordinarily problematic because it depends mostly on those arguments. And you see governments like uh, Narendra Modi saying, no human rights is a Western imposition. And besides, you know, you colonized us and there are no universal principles of justice. That's just simply not true, and fortunately there are some writers from formerly colonized countries who are speaking up against that sort of abuse now, and I quote some of them in my book. It's a rather nefarious sort of move. Again, it's an old move. It's 2,500 years old, and Socrates had a hard time refuting it then, but we have to keep refuting it in every generation, I think.
1: Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned Frederick Douglass. I think What to the Slaves is the Fourth of July is perhaps the classic text in the American tradition that defends the idea and the strategy of living up to these values and demanding inclusion of those values rather than dismissing them, because they are so often hypocritical, as of course they were in Frederick Douglass's time, as he states very bluntly in that wonderful speech. I want to push you on one thing here. I'm a left liberal, I suppose. You you say you're a socialist liberal. So let me push you on this particular point, because as you're saying, the conflict between people who are saying we should respond to hypocrisy by ceasing to be hypocritical, or we should respond to hypocrisy by getting rid of the values and the rules that aren't consistently followed, goes back to Socrates. Socrates. But one of the very important associations of it was in the history of socialism. Now, I don't think that, broadly speaking, the tradition we're talking about is just a form of, quote-unquote, cultural Marxism. I think that's a misunderstanding, and we agree on that. And perhaps we'll come back to it. But there is an important parallel here, right, which is that socialists and Marxists have always said that about liberal democracy. They have said the rules of bourgeois democracy are just a set of illusions that are meant to pull the wool over the eyes of the proletariat, right? All of the constitutions of the world are just the sort of notes by the committee to defend the bourgeoisie. And so therefore, any genuine progress entails the exact same kind of rejection of neutral rules and universal values uh, that now the identitarian left in different form is asking for. So do you think that there is this parallel between the rejection today by the quote-unquote woke of his aspiration to living up to his principles and the way in which a lot of the Marxist tradition talked about it? And which side of that debate do you stand on when it comes to issues of class?
0: In a lot of the Marxist texts, you do have that position, which is why I don't call myself a Marxist. I'm a socialist, and I wrote about that In book I read 15 years ago, Moral Clarity, about where I think Marx went wrong on that score. Although in some of his writings, especially the early writings, it looks like he's saying something closer to what you and I believe, which is that liberalism claims to uphold certain principles of equality, fraternity, and liberty, but without thinking about the material means to realize those principles, it leaves a huge portion of the population, in fact, without the means to liberty or equality.
1: That's sort of a social democratic reading of the early Marx.
0: If we want to talk socialist theory, I think probably my favorite socialist theorist is uh, Edward Bernstein, one of the founders of the German Social Democratic Party. I can call myself a Social Democrat or a Democratic Socialist, but I stick to the term socialist partly to provoke people, partly to remind people that there was a socialist tradition in the English-speaking world that has been pretty much wiped out of Consciousness. People are astonished when they realize that Albert Einstein wrote an essay defending socialism in 1947, beginning of the McCarthy era. And we tend to forget, and I think this is uh, not an accident, that there's many forms of socialism, at least, as there are forms of capitalism. I don't think the left really worked through what went wrong in 1991 or 1989, whichever date you prefer, I think 91. The collapse of state socialism and this one model that was, you know, repressive and authoritarian and problematic in all kinds of ways left a lot of people feeling helpless. I can remember people who had spent years debating what kind of a socialist they were, whether they were a socialist. Um, And I'm thinking of several different countries, just saying, oh, gosh, I guess, you know, it always led straight to the gulag, and I was mistaken, and this is the end of history. And I actually think that is a huge reason for the development of woke, because it seemed to people that large-scale universalist political projects had been proved hopeless, if not wrong. And the thing to focus on was individual and group identities. I don't like the word identity politics because it reduces all the identities we have down to two, and also down to the two that we have the least form of agency in. But I do think that The lack of reflection on the left and the sense of helplessness and hopelessness about what it might mean to have a real universalist left-wing project that would be global, lack of reflection about what went wrong has led to this interning about defending my group, figuring out my group identity, and that über alles.
1: On a side note about identity politics, I agree with you that that's not a helpful term in part because there are certain forms of identity politics that are perfectly natural part of democracy. You always are going to have some forms of group interest representation, right? The American Association of Retired Persons is a very, you know, normal kind of form of democratic politics. Here's an identity group, people who are old, of retirement age, and we're going to defend their interests. You might think that sometimes the ARP has a positive impact on the world, sometimes perhaps there's a negative impact in over-prioritizing the interests of a particular demographic group, but it's a perfectly legitimate form of politics. And the same, I would say, is true of you know, associations representing Armenian immigrants in the United States and perhaps putting pressure on Congress to recognize by name what happened in Armenia after 1918 and so on, right? So there's forms of interest group politics that have an identity base that are legitimate where it becomes illegitimate is when you want to make it the very basis of the principles of a society.
0: Well, I think there's a fundamental difference between interest and principles, okay? And, you know, while here's a difference between us, I would kind of shrug my shoulders and say, well, there will always be interest group politics, but I would look forward to a time when the interests were not tribal. And this is why I write in the book, I don't consider myself an ally. I mean, the reason why I would support say, Black Lives Matter in certain phases, is not because it's in my interest in any way, shape, or form. It's because shooting unarmed people of color is a violation of human rights. And interestingly enough, Arendt picked this up in Eichmann in Jerusalem and did not emphasize it enough at the time, and I don't think she realized how important it was. She said, Eichmann should have been indicted for crimes against humanity, not for crimes against the Jewish people, because what he did was a crime against humanity. So allies are people who have shared interests for a while, like the United States and the Soviet Union, and then suddenly they didn't anymore. But you can principally support a struggle out of solidarity because you believe that human rights are being violated.
1: I think we do absolutely agree on that. I think it becomes particularly relevant when it comes to questions surrounding both standpoint theory and political allyship. So there's a kind of left identitarian view, which roughly speaking says, if we are from different identity groups, then you're never going to be able to fully understand me and my experience, especially if I'm more pressed to disadvantaged than you in some kind. And so rather than understanding my experience, you should simply defer to me. And when it comes to political action, you shouldn't think for yourself what the right thing to do is. You should say, I'm an ally to that group, and that group demands this, so therefore I too am going to demand that happen. And I think that is wrong just epistemologically. I think that in fact we are capable, if we put in relevant work, to understand the politically relevant experiences of people. We may never quite feel it 100%, but we can come to understand certainly why their experiences are unjust by listening with an open mind to what they tell us about the way that the world looks to them and the experiences that they have. And then I precisely think that the number of people who are ever going to defer the judgment in this kind of way is going to be very, very limited. It's only people who are already incredibly committed to political action. And even those will always pick spokespeople from the group of whom they already agree. They're going to say, oh, I think we should do that because... This group is saying that but they're going to pick the spokesperson for that group who already agrees with them about what kind of political action is needed. And a much more realistic model of political agency is to say, no, actually, I believe that a black man in the United States should be able to walk down the street without fear of the police. And I believe that a woman should be able to be on the subway without being fearful of being harassed. And I believe that gays and lesbians should be able to go to a bar without fearing that we're going to be beaten up. And it's not that I'm deferring to their judgment because I'm an ally to their communities that I'm going to be upset if those principles are violated. It's because... I have my own ideas about the kind of society I want to live in, and that I think we should all collectively want to live in. And when those principles are violated, I want to make the world more just, and that's the reason why I'm standing up in this situation.
0: Yes, well, we agree on that as well. The problem is, if you carry the, you can't possibly understand my experience line far enough. None of us can understand anyone. I mean, this is there's a line of the, a couple of lines in, in analytic philosophy that actually claim we can never know another person's standpoint, even if they come from our tribe. So this is, for me, the point of great literature, great music, great film, which is why I'm extremely annoyed by the claims about cultural appropriation. Precisely the function of great art is to help us understand better, both ourselves, but also a culture that is not ours. And there are other arguments against the cultural appropriation claim, which is that most cultural products are the products of appropriation. Appropriation is, of course, not the same thing as exploitation. We all know that it's um, taken place. But if you pay some attention to other people's cultures, learn at least another language or two, you will never be able to do it for the plurality of different cultures' In the world, but I always argue that making an attempt to walk around in two other cultures besides your own, it can't just be one, okay? If it's one, then you're in this permanent, well, here they do it like that, and there they do it like that. But just to realize that there are many different perspectives on the world gives you, first of all, a perspective on yourself, and secondly, a, a sense of someone others. I came up with a metaphor that I find compelling in the book about flesh and bones. And I look at cultural differences as being like flesh. And of course, I'm not in favor of doing away with flesh. Flesh is interesting. It's in different colors and sizes and shapes and all of that. But the bones are the things that tie us together. And the bones are also the things that remain of us after we're gone. So cultural pluralism is a wonderful thing, but political universalism is the thing that holds us together.
1: So we've worked our way up from principle three to principle two, and I think it's getting time to principle one. So if you believe that the world remains unjust in many important ways, but we have actually been able to make progress. And if you reject the idea that universal principles are always hypocritical. If you think no, actually, part of how we've made this progress is by living up more fully to these principles. Then you're left at number three with so perhaps we need to reevaluate universalism, which has need to become a dirty word in big parts of political discourse and and particularly. On the left. So make us your most passionate case for capital U universalism.
0: Well, I started with this metaphor of flesh and bones that committing yourself to universalism hardly adm- commits you to the idea that everybody is just alike. And it also doesn't commit you to. The move that tends to be made on the left, and particularly in post colonial circles, of saying this talk about universal values is just cover for a white European patriarchal scam that was trying to make everyone else like them. In fact, you find principles of universalism in many, many cultures. Okay. And what particularly annoys me about this post colonial critique of the Enlightenment is that it actually comes from the Enlightenment itself. It's usually not made by people who, I think, read more than 10 words, and then usually in a Wikipedia article, of the Enlightenment. But the idea that Europeans, European Americans, should look at the world from other than European perspectives comes straight out of the Enlightenment, as I'm sure you know. You know, it was the Enlightenment that took this trope, starting with Montesquieu, of criticizing Europe from the perspective of fictionalized Persians, Chinese, indigenous South American priests, Tahitians. The entire reproach about Eurocentrism was invented by the Enlightenment, okay? And there's an excellent, but not perhaps 100% accurate, Book that came out last year by David Graeber and David Wengro, The Dawn of Everything. They actually argue that a lot of Enlightenment political philosophy came out of not just fictitious non Europeans, but a real non European, a member of the Huron tribe in Canada. It's not clear that their research there is conclusive, but what is clear is that thinkers of the Enlightenment were incredibly interested in reports and ideas coming from non-European places, specifically about things like the patriarchy, like patriarchal marriage laws and treatment of women that was different in other cultures, about property relations that were different in indigenous North Americans whom they were in contact with. And what's so strange about this is that Those thinkers actually risked something, in some cases their lives. The philosopher Christian Wolf, who was a big influence on Immanuel Kant, even if very few people have heard of him today, gave a lecture arguing that the Chinese, he studied some Confucius and some Mencius, and he argued that the Chinese had a perfectly good system of morals, even though they weren't Christians. And for this, he was ordered to leave not just his university position, but the entire state of Prussia in 48 hours, or to face execution. So this is not a Twitter storm. These people were standing up for a genuine universalism. That encompassed, you know, and learned from other countries. And it's all over enlightenment texts if you actually, if anybody actually bothers to read them. I like the way that you connected all three of the principles that I'm using for the liberal left. I would have done it in the other direction, but I do say in the beginning, they're all interconnected because if you are not a universalist, you base your principles on tribal claims, which are fundamentally interests of power and not principles. And if you base your politics on tribal interests, you know, then it's very unlikely that we're going to make any genuine progress. You will have an eternal struggle of all against all that may accidentally turn up to be more just in one period than another, but probably no one would be around to recognize it. The one worry I have
1: about this conversation is that we've agreed about too much. So I want to hone in on something where we might disagree, which is a different set sort of things that you've worked on. You know, we're both Jewish and we've both spent parts of our lives in Germany. We sort of spent, as I understand it, different parts of our lives in Germany. We should say that I grew up there and then I moved away and you grew up in America and then you moved there. But you have argued in the past that there are, many things that other countries can learn from how Germany has dealt with its dark past. And I obviously broadly agree that Germany has done much better on that count than Japan, for example. I was in the very moving area of Hiroshima, which commemorates the dropping of the bomb a few months ago. But I was very struck in the museum about Hiroshima that The reasons for Japan's entry into World War II barely alluded to in a half sentence in one display. Other than that, this day is just presented without any kind of context about what Japan did in, in World War II, for example. And probably the Japanese model is closer to the rule than it is to being the exception. The sort of extent to which Germany has grappled with its past has long been quite exceptional. So I recognize that, you know, what Germans call Vergangenheitsverwältigung, its, its process of dealing with the past has been quite important remark. As somebody who's grown up in Germany as a Jew, I have to say for, but I'm rather more skeptical than I think you have been about how some of that has played out, both about how thoroughly it's shaped society, but also perhaps about whether an over-obsession with it, which I think did mark the German public, at least for a period in the 90s and 2000s, was ultimately helpful to building a better society. And I personally, growing up there, often experienced this sort of extent to which Germans thought about what Germany is and whether you're a good German as sort of channeled through how are we going to think about the past and therefore how are we going to treat the few Jews who are still around today as a real obstacle to friendship and to contact with people. I often found that precisely the most noble Germans, precisely those who were most keen to grapple with the lessons of the past and to prove that they moved beyond it, and that they were not guilty of any of the sins of the ancestors, or at least the co-nationals, were the ones who ended up treating me when I was growing up in a kind of creepy, overly too so and overly sort of friendly, and so on.
0: Let me say a couple of things, because I did read your first book, and I'll tell you what my thought was. Here's somebody who grows up in a small town in Bavaria, and he comes to Cambridge, Mass., and he feels suddenly free, okay? And I get that. Entirely, But you see, I grew up in the South as a Jew in the South, which was extremely different than moving to Cambridge, Mass., which I also did at the age of 19, New York at the age of 17. And just to make sure that I have a window on what it's still like in the South, I spent more than half a year in Mississippi researching that book. And boy, being a Jew is still just as problematic in Mississippi, less. So in Atlanta, but I still celebrated the fact that a Jew and a black man were elected to the Senate from Georgia. I'm a hopeful person, not an optimistic person, but a hopeful person. I think it was going to happen, okay? So going from a small town in Bavaria to, you know, New York or Cambridge is very different. Believe me, people are as icky and uncomfortable about Jews in certain ways in other parts of the US as they are in parts of Germany. Now, that being said, I wrote that book, was finished four and a half years ago. And I have found myself in the past couple of years, quoting my late, much lamented friend, Tony Judd, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? When I began to write that book, I thought that the Especially in Berlin. I I must say that I've traveled to other parts of Germany for work and stuff. There's no other place that I would live in Germany than Berlin in the way that I... My guess is you would only gravitate to (laughs) metropolitan eastern seaboard cities, okay? Berlin has become an extraordinarily mixed place, and it's not just a few Jews anymore. It's the fastest growing Jewish community in Europe, so including some estimated 20,000 Israelis. So it is the one place that I would feel comfortable living in Germany, but it too has... And here I agree with you, I think the last three years for political reasons that I'm not going to explain to an American audience, I'm in the process of writing a longer piece on this in English, things have gotten significantly worse in the past three years, where an over focus on German crimes of the past has led to two things that are incredibly problematic. One is it leaves Germany absolutely unable to talk about what's going on in the present, particularly in the state of Israel. But secondly, it winds up thinking that the only Jewish voices that count are the voices that talk about Jewish victimhood. They have completely forgotten about Jewish universalists. They put people on postage stamps when they're dead, you know, but from Moses Mendelssohn to Hannah Arendt, the German Jews of the past who are mourned, were all universalists. And at the moment, the focus on German crimes, uh, you know, they've all learned the lesson, Jews were our victims, we murdered them, leads people to see authentic Jewish voices as the ones who cry anti-Semitism the loudest at any occasion. Now, this relates, just two more sentences. My Involvement. I've been very politically engaged in this in the last couple of years in Germany has also led me to think about and partly float into my thinking in left is not woke, because I fear that a similar view is gaining hold in the United States, that the people of color who are listened to seriously are those who talk most about the permanence of racism And those who go against that line are dismissed, are called conservatives when they're liberal Democrats, you know, those who present an alternative, much more universalist view. So I see parallels and problems now in both places that I didn't see five years ago when I was writing that book.
1: Yeah, and I think the parallel is in part the sort of distance between the views that claim to and are widely seen as speaking for the group and the views insofar as we know of the group themselves. We have less good public opinion polling on that in Germany, but I think it's plausible to think that there's this distance. And in the United States, we know that very well, right? I mean, the view of a person who speaks for African-Americans, for Latinos or for Asian-Americans on CNN or MSNBC is just very distinctly different from everything we can see from careful studies of public opinion among those groups um, in survey research. And I think that's interesting. A small point about my upbringing I grew up in a small town in Swabia. It's a permissible mistake. I'm sure it's been a while since you've read the book, and thank you for reading it. And then in a, in a relatively large town in Munich. I mean, from a perspective and in Bavaria, which was just Munich. I mean, from the perspective of Berlin, perhaps Munich is also a small town. But to me, um, dealing with some of the sort of unreconstructed ignorance and anti-Semitism at the time in the small town in Sweden, which itself has changed since, I think, was easier to do than dealing with some of the philo-Semitism, some of the creepier forms of special treatment that I felt I received in a pretty cosmopolitan artist bourgeois milieu in Munich. And perhaps it leads us Two assessments that are subtly different interesting way of how Germany has changed in the last years. I agree with some of what you said about that, but to me, I feel freer as a Jew in Germany today than I did 15 or 20 years ago. And that's in part perhaps because some of those questions of my identity and my upbringing have become less central to me. Perhaps writing that first book of mine was a form of exorcism as well. But it is, I think, also because Germany has changed. And one of the ways in which Germany, I think, has changed in a good way is that, in my mind, it's become much less obsessed with its past. That to think about what it is like to be a good German today and what German identity is and how we should think about the nation now depends in part on your opinion about what we did or should have done in 2016, 2017 during the refugee crisis. It depends in part on what you think today about all kinds of social and cultural policies. It depends on whether you're comfortable with an increasingly diverse Germany and with Jews are present, but many, many other groups are present as well. And I think all of that transformation has put Jews a little bit less in the foreground than the were in the public debate in the 90s and 2000s. And actually, I think that's been incredibly positive. So I would add one more parallel to the one that you offered, which I agreed with, which is that one of the reasons why I've been constitutionally allergic to certain forms of left identitarian discourse and practice in the United States is that I sometimes felt I was being asked to treat people who belong to minority groups in the United States in the way that I was treated by people with the best of intentions growing up in Germany. I knew how that made me feel and that that was not a path towards a genuine form of equality. And that's why I wasn't able and willing to go along with it.
0: No, I agree with you entirely. But I should say, first of all, I came to Germany in 1982. I don't know how old you were in 1982, but I think I'm about a generation older than you are. I I was born in 1982. Okay. So I experienced both at that time pretty problematic, straightforward anti Semitism, but also the absolute weirdness and unpleasantness of of philosemitism. So I've been through all that. And I left Berlin. At the end of 1988, having had my first child here, thinking I did not want to bring up a child in that kind of weird environment. Totally agreed. I decided to come back in 1998 because I was convinced that Germany had changed in all the ways. I mean, well, I came back in 2000, 1998, we finally got rid of the CDU and we had a social democrat green government and they put in a lot of changes, also a lot of symbolic changes. And one could see that there was a genuinely different attitude, not just to Jews, but to people from different cultures altogether. So absolutely, I really did think that Germany was going in very much the right direction until exactly three years ago. If you've been, I know you've been doing lots of other things. So if you haven't been following our local, what I call, Philosemitic McCarthyism, that's fine, but it's problematic. But I think if we're only talking about before 2019-2020, then I think we actually probably do agree on something else, Yasha. So this this has been a...
1: Well, I think on the other topic, perhaps we agree to 80%, here perhaps we agree to 60%, but we'll need to deepen this in another conversation. Just very briefly at the end, in one minute or less, if people agree with you on the main thesis of what you've been talking about, and they think of themselves as left-wing, and they're in a milieu that is very left-wing, and they're worried about making the points you just made to your friends and colleagues and so on, do you have any advice for how to speak up for those ideas without losing, you know, without ceasing to be in good standing with your leftist social circle?
0: First of all, speak up. You will find that many more people agree with you um, and will say things like, I was going to say that, but I was afraid to. I mean, it has happened to me many, many times. I think the second question that everybody should ask themselves and ask their friends and colleagues is, list 10 identities that are crucial to your being. And I think everybody will find, first of all, it's hard to restrict yourself to 10. But you certainly will not restrict yourself to two, which is race and gender. And to think about why essentializing people just a couple of decades ago on the basis of these two categories over which they have quite little agency, and to think about what it means to you to be a person who makes decisions, who acts in the world, who's an agent Raise those questions with your friends and colleagues, and you'll be surprised at the positive reactions that you get.
1: Susan Neiman, thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
0: Pleasure. Look forward to meeting you in real life sometime.